Welcome to the EDS at Union Now podcast. Today's episode was recorded just after the Racial Reconciliation Tech Talk at the 79th General Convention of the Episcopal Church. And in this conversation, I was struck by how open the Reverend Eric Law and the Right Reverend Jeff Fisher both are when talking about their experiences addressing these challenges in their congregations and communities. They discuss the church's shortcomings of accepting people of all races, and they share personal moments when they needed to interrogate their own actions to better live out their Christian faith. The other thing that I loved about this conversation is the many real-life tactics they've used to create a more inclusive space for worship. This podcast is a new initiative for EDS at Union, so please help us by subscribing to the show and letting us know what you think on Twitter and Facebook. And with that, I will leave it to the Dean of Episcopal Divinity School at Union, the very Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, for her conversation with the Reverend Eric Law and the Right Reverend Jeff Fisher. We are joined in conversation today by the Right Reverend Jeff Fisher, who serves as the suffragan bishop in the Diocese of Texas. He has served on numerous boards and committees in the diocese and around the church, and of course is known for his powerful preaching and his focus on evangelism. He has also been in the forefront in taking seriously of what it means to bear the cross in the fight for racial justice as he challenges churches across his diocese to recognize their complicity and responsibility in breaking the cycle of white supremacy. And so I thank you, Bishop Fisher, for being with us this afternoon in this conversation. Thank you very much. We also welcome with us an EDS alum, the Reverend Eric Law, who is the founder and executive director of the Kaleidoscope Institute for Competent Leadership in a Diverse Changing World a ministry of the Diocese of Los Angeles. The Kaleidoscope Institute began its ministry by providing basic leadership training for building inclusive community and community transformation. Reverend Law has been a consultant and trainer for over 20 years in working in this area and consulting with the Roman Catholic Church, United Methodist Church, Presbyterians, American Baptists, United Church of Christ, the wider faith community, and inclusive, of course, of the Episcopal Church. And he is the author of many books on this subject. Thank you, Reverend Law, for joining us in this conversation today. Thank you. As we begin the conversation, I want to start by asking each of you, what brings you to this work of racial justice and reconciliation? Bishop Fisher. I think you asked the question, Kelly, what brings me to this work? I think a better question is who brings me to this work? And Jesus brings me to this work. I cannot do this work on my own. It is only through meeting Jesus Christ in a way that our presiding bishop preached about so compellingly yesterday in the opening Eucharist. And I am a fifth generation native Texan. All of my ancestors fought for the Confederate States of America. And I was raised a a pretty white suburban home in, in Houston. And it was through my experience, once I went to seminary at the Virginia Theological Seminary, 
and Alexandria that I experienced myself in a much more diverse environment. And Jesus not only commands me to do this work, but it's not a burden, it's a joy. And I've discovered time and time again, when I'm with people who have different backgrounds and contexts than I, that I find joy in that. And that joy comes because I feel like I'm living more and more fully into God's expansive family. You speak about having been raised in a Confederate community and perhaps tradition and family and how Jesus brought you to this work. Can you say a little bit about, if you will, that sort of Damascus Road experience, that conversion experience as what it means to be a white Southern man and getting engaged? How did you get really get engaged in this work and hear, if you will, the call of Jesus? Right. I I will say that in my family growing up, I knew two people of color, basically, the maid and our yard man. But I always thought that we treated everyone like family. And it was an experience I had at the lunch table in the refectory at the Virginia Seminary when the Reverend Paula Clark Green, she was not a reverend at the time, but she sat across from me at the table and said, you know what, Jeff Fisher, you're a racist. <laughs> my first thought was, no, I'm not. And then I thought, yes, I am. And I think if you had to name, there's probably been many experiences in this work I would call Damascus Road experiences, but that's the one that comes to mind today. Thank you. Reverend Law, what brings you to this work? I'm a cradle Episcopalian. Many people don't know that. Uh, third generation, actually. Um, and my family immigrated to the United States when I was 14. And the awareness of race was not kind of the American version until uh, we landed in Augusta, Georgia and was introduced to the type of racism, finding the Chinese Georgian community caught in between black and white. So I was 14 at the time. And then my family moved to New York City and immediately immersed myself into a very diverse uh, community in my high school in the Lower East Side really raised my consciousness of, of uh, hey, there's something here. And being part of the struggle and the choices I made was very interesting in that. And I think fast forward to after I finished uh, seminary, I was appointed as the campus minister at the University of Southern California. At that time, the school's student body was approaching 50% non-white. And yet there was so little being done and being recited in a place where the majority of the neighborhood around USC was people of color and began to realize that something needs to be done. So I simply hang up a sign for interracial dialogue and people started showing up. That's how I started doing the work because there was the need. And then fast forward to the 92 riots in Los Angeles. I was in the middle of that. And at the invitation of the Bishop and a FEMA grant, I was invited to facilitate a citywide interracial dialogue involving nine major religions. And that's really the deep dive into the work. From the experience noticing to actually blessed to be invited to struggle with this work, knowing I didn't know that much, but there was a need and let's, let's do it, let's try it. Let's sort of fast forward to the session this morning. What did you hear? What stood out, Fisher Fisher? I heard a lot of caring. I was struck by 
the word healing. Mm -hmm. I think that, and maybe as our conversation goes on today, we'll say more about this. I always find myself looking for maybe another possible word to use about this work. And so the phrase healing really came out to me. Probably the thing that I will take away from that whole session this morning might not have been seen by other people, but I saw it tweeted about. And that is, I think, the four main speakers, them off to the side, laughing together and kind of high-fiving each other and hugging. Seeing probably for the four of them, that was a stressful moment to be up on that stage and for all four of them who looked extremely diverse, even amongst themselves, to share in that joyful moment, kind of like, we did it. I, I love seeing that. Because what I saw was is that the four of those who presented today, uh, they became a family. Reverend Law, what did you hear? Uh, I heard forgiveness and compassion as a double-edged sword uh, toward healing or to a way of loving a Nazi out of the person. I heard that. I heard being well is more important than being white or black. I heard this could be simple, love and acceptance. <laughs> I heard that if we care about the children who is be being incarcerated at the border, uh, we should care about all the other oppressed groups who are being uh, locked up in, uh, in all different kinds of ways. And in order to have reconciliation, we have to have justice. And in order to have justice, we have to have truth. In fact, it was Reverend Nancy Fausto who said, in order to have reconciliation, we have to have justice. And in order to have justice, we have to have truth. That struck me when she said that. What would it mean for our church to tell the truth about who it is, who it has been, what it wants to be in terms of this matter of racial justice. And, and perhaps I should preface that by saying, have, do you believe we've told that truth? I, I, think, I don't think we've told the truth. <laughs> and I think we, we're starting to. And I think that we can tell that we have not told the truth when in our largely white congregation, someone walks in of color and all the heads turn and you can tell people are thinking, why are they here? That, that means we haven't told the truth. Uh, the truth is saying, uh, you know, given, this is an example, given my background, my context, my upbringing, when someone of color walks into this church, my immediate reaction is to kind of freeze up or to feel uncomfortable. And I think that this next step beyond truth telling in that example is then to express that feeling to another person and to share those feelings. But as far as telling the truth, is concerned. I think we do a good job because we're human beings, we're sinful, of, of covering that up in order to make us feel more comfortable. But the truth is, is that especially in the Episcopal Church for many, many years, we have said that we are welcoming to all, but really we haven't told the truth about ourselves and about the feelings that we have when we're encountering someone that looks differently than us. Reverend Law, did you want to add to that? When I engage a local community in anti-racism work or racial reconciliation work, it never kind of, it, it doesn't surprise me, but it, it does in that people know so little about the history and, and the truth. Even, you know, so for example, when I do the anti-racism training for incoming students at Sewanee, 
And there's a wonderful piece of truth of history, which is written about during the 50s when the faculty of the seminary want the school to, uh, to integrate and they've created all kinds of uh, reaction to this is not the right time, this is not the right way to do it. And eventually the faculty resigned and the, and the trustee let them. <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a wonderful, amazing piece of history that the student don't know. And, and so one of the requirements we did was to ask them to read the whole piece about that and, and engage them in a conversation about that. So that's the kind of truth-telling that needs to happen in every diocese, every local church, and uh, whether you're liberal, progressive, uh, leaning uh, in your theology and so on, uh, that kind of truth has not been told. When, when Eric's talking, he's reminded of the scripture in the Gospel of John, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Um, because when we tell the truth, you know, even when I was telling you that story about what it'd be like for someone of a person of color to come in, I, I found myself saying, why did I say that? I mean, but then once I do, it makes you feel free. What's at stake for our church? Why have we found it so hard to live into the truth of who we are? What it means for us to have been born the colonial church in so many respects of the South, a church that didn't really split over the issue of slavery, not because we were all in agreement in that regard, but because of the way in which we responded or didn't respond to the issue of slavery. What does it mean for us? And um, what's at stake for us to tell the truth or not tell the truth about how long it took to get black bishops and when they were made bishops, they were made suffragans and what that meant. And or even as we celebrate it today, the Absalom Jones Institute. Well, to tell the truth about Absalom Jones's journey in our church or to tell the truth about Alexander Cremel's journey through our church. Why is it so difficult for the church to tell the truth about itself and its racial history? I think the fear is that uh, is losing the sense of identity that has been projected and ingrained in us, especially for the historically dominant group in our church. So church history basically is the, is the history of the dominant group's perspective. And to them, that is the truth. And so if we are to really speak the truth, then we have to revise our history and what does that leave me? And one of the questions the student is Sawani asks is that this bishop is revered, it is respected in our, in our history, in my diocese. And I just read he said this during the 60s. So I had to kind of figure out how to live with that. So for me, the word for true in Chinese, it consists of three words. The word number 10, the word for eye, the seeing eye, and the word for tables. So 10 eyes on a table makes something true. So the concept of truth, it is not just one perspective or one loudest perspective, but to get a holistic listening and appreciation of the different experiences. And that's how the truth emerge. And that truth will, act, will truly set us free, right? But if we dare to listen to those other voices, like Nancy's voice, like Arnold's voice. What does that make us? And it's, it's like being put the rug being pulled out from us. Everything we stand on so far 
is is not true or, or is partial true, then what do we do? So I think that might be the, one of the difficulties. I agree so much with what Eric said about that identity piece. And I was struck today by the first speaker, I think his name was Arno, uh, who had been a Nazi, and he said, they didn't beat the Nazi out of me, they, they loved it out of me. And, and I think that kind of takes us into the next step of this conversation of, of how do we start this work? And so the, as someone who is a neo-Nazi, and that's pretty extreme, but I'll, I'll just speak about myself. If you say, okay, what if I wasn't a white Southerner? What if I wasn't a native Texan? What if I didn't have all these pieces that are part of my identity? If you just try to like, just hammer that at me, that's not going to be helpful because there's nothing to replace it with. But I feel like my identity is in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the new creation, the new identity. And so to tell someone it's bad to be a Democrat or bad to be a Republican or just to, to beat up on their identity without giving a, a vision of what a, a new identity would be. But I think Erica is completely right that we're scared to tell the truth about this because if, it, if, we, uh, if our identity crumbles, what are we gonna replace it with? So how do we get people, you know, and, and I think you're, you're both right on that. So how do we get people to begin to interrogate whiteness and how do we get our church to interrogate whiteness and even to help our church to understand that we do have to give that up. I often say it's not about looking like a white American, it's about acting like a white American. And you just because you happen to look like a white American doesn't mean you have to act like one. And so and there's a distance between what it means to be Christian, what it means to be church, and to live into whiteness. How do we bring ourselves as a church, as a people, to that conversation to free people enough to have the courage to begin to interrogate, if you will, whiteness. Well, I'll say, Kelly, we've already gone through some of the steps by you asking the question. (laughs) Use the verb interrogate. My first thought was, can't you pick something else to say beside that? But that's the first step is obviously you and I, you're an African-American, I'm not. And so the first step is you, you pushed on me a little bit with that. But also I know that you and I are friends, so it's okay. So I guess the, the thing is for me is the first step is always to have a one-on-one conversation with someone. Like for example, Kelly, if, you, if I'd gone to like your, one of your lectures or speaking seminars and heard you use that language without having the relationship with you, I, I probably wouldn't be as open to, to whatever words you were saying to me. And I've just found time and time again that what changes this situation is not statements, not legislation. It is sitting down over a cup of coffee, over a beer, with someone who looks different from you and just asking the simple question, tell me your story of race. Tell me your story of exclusion. Tell me the story of when you were always picked last to play dodgeball. And and from that, you find the commonality so that both people are transformed. I would take it even a step back. One of the biggest stumbling blocks to get to that place of having the real conversation is how do you get even people to number one notice that, that and then to invite them into what I call a grace margin, which is my term, that the margin in, that that is full of grace, that 
that you're willing to come in and explore this scary thing and I'm willing to go in and, and also explore and share some scary thing, right? How do we get people to do that? And, and one of the things that I have struggled with is to say, how do you get Episcopalian? Let's even start with that, right? Uh, in, uh, in a parish in the middle of Ohio to come and talk about race. And so we have developed a process, what we call gracious invitation, where in which we actually sit down and maybe even do some research and, and talk to people and say, what are you afraid of if we are to ask you to come and talk about race? And based on that collection of information, then we create an invitation and says, you know, you're invited to give it a neutral kind of a name. And to say, we will not do that which you're afraid of. We will not point finger at you. We will not yell at you. But not to just say we won't do that, but back that up by saying that we will invite you to, to listen and to share from your heart and to try and understand a different point of view. But we will not ask you to agree. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm just giving you a few examples of that. Some of these invitations that we have developed are so skillfully done that increase the attendance of these gatherings by 300 fold. Just simply helping people, naming the fear and then addressing those fear by saying, no, no, we're not gonna do that which you're afraid of, but we will push you a bit. And in that tension, that's where people run. And, and I think, and then uh, of course, when we do get them there, then the first thing we do is build this relationship that now we, we know each other as human beings with our own upbringing and so on, then that holds us together when an issue comes up and we disagree or, we, or something that's so shockingly new, we're still there for each other. So I think that's the kind of thing that's missing, you know, passing resolution and, and also going the other way and saying, this is bad, it's important, but it doesn't get us to that, what Fisher said that one-on-one -on -one or in a conversation. And Dean Douglas, you've seen us in action at the National Cathedral when they removed Robert E. Lee's window and we created a place for dialogue for three hours. And they are a very diverse group. And, and what people don't know was that we spent hours and almost two weeks to craft the invitation to get people there. Yeah, and I was a part of that conversation. And what I'm struck by in both of your responses is as you talk about this sort of gracious space, but this beginning level of trust that has to be there. And, and I'm struck, Bishop Fisher, as we have been growing in our friendship together, that it started out with a level of trust that we both knew that we wanted to get to a different place and we trusted each other's humanity and integrity, getting there and respected each other's sacred personhood and humanity. And so it seems to me that you're very right, that there has to be this foundation of recognition, at least, that we both are all sacred human beings and we trust where we want to go, even through the uncomfortable spaces. And if I can use the word again, uncomfortable spaces of interrogating ourselves. So it, leads me to ask, how do we get as a church to that point, but beyond this point of 
passing resolutions. What's next? I'm struck by the fact that since 1994 in this church at our various general conventions, we have passed at least nine resolutions on our commitment to anti-racism work or our individual commitments to take responsibility in our homes, communities, dioceses, congregations toward promoting racial justice. And, and hopefully out of that can come racial reconciliation. But here we are again now in 2018, passing more resolutions. How do we get beyond resolutions? I think that sometimes we want to go global when really we need to start more locally. And I, I know that the House of Bishops has passed several, uh, made a written pastoral letters, into crying racism, and the presiding bishop, Catherine Jefford Shorey, uh, toward the end of her term, called upon the House of Bishops to address racism once again. And I immediately leapt at the opportunity to be a part of that. There was a group of 13 bishops who gathered, I think, three or four years ago in Chicago to craft yet again another statement. And it was such a holy moment when we realized in the first hour that we could not write a statement on this until we had done the work amongst ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the 13 of us then had those holy, gracious conversations. And then we spent two and a half days in the House of Bishops doing this work. So before we go and point the finger, you know, you need to change this, and even to take it even more locally, in our politically charged environment, how do we have these gracious conversations at our Thanksgiving dinner table? It's hard, <laughs> uh, but but I think it's I think it's easier us for us to 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 look far aflung and to write these global statements when instead maybe and I love Kelly you're you're making me really think about that word interrogate how do interrogate how I interrogate myself into recognizing what are the the small tables of influence that I have in my own daily life where I could open up the space of, of trust and grace to be able to start to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. I just designed last Thanksgiving a dialogue process where people are preparing them to have gracious conversation at Thanksgiving and Christmas with their relatives and friends. So that's a resource that we call Building Bridges Now. Uh, you can go to uh, buildingbridgesnow.com. But I think the how do you get, get beyond passing resolution? In the early 2000s, the Diocese of Los Angeles responded to one of those resolutions and proceed to invite local congregation to send teams. And I was the, the invited to design and facilitate this, that we required 40 contact hours on anti-racism. We didn't call it that, we call it the Kaleidoscope Project, which is the earlier version of my organization, the Kaleidoscope Institute. Not to kind of, we I'm blowing our trumpet at the diocese, right? 40 hours, teams of five people, leadership, including the priest, clergy, to, to come to this experience of five Saturdays. That's how extensive we did it in response to that. And compared to some other diocese who's just starting to do it. So that there lies the issue for me that how can we ensure that there are passionate and skilled people in every diocese to take it to the edge, to the place as far as they can go. We were, because of our experience in, the, in the riots in the 90s and so on, 
that we are skilled in doing, that we utilize that and run with it. So, so I think a way of planting passionate and skilled people in every diocese using our network to do this work. And there, there are very, a lot of good networks in our diocese. EFM being in our, in our church, EFM being one of the extensive ones uh, where people and women can commit time. ECW, Godly Play has a network. Stewardship has another network. And I, I don't think we, uh, we're utilizing those networks to get to that level of work and be able to organize in a way that will create the local conversation at the appropriate level to get people into this. And I think that that's one of the quick answers to that. Well, thank you. Bishop Fisher, it looked like you wanted to jump back in. Yes, I also wanted to, because Eric was trumpeting his work, <laughs> jump in and say in the, in the Diocese of Texas, we're doing great work also in many different forums with this. And one of the things that we haven't talked about is, is community engagement. And that is to getting to know who actually is in your communities. And I think we tend to silo ourselves. You know, we go, certain types of people go to the same grocery stores or the same restaurants, but to, to actually be honest about who are actually in our communities. And we're doing some wonderful work in all the regions of our Diocese of Texas right now to, to turn our people outward and to engage your community on a very real level, which once again, that's how you start to build that trust. No, thank you for saying that. And I agree. And as you say that, and I think we're probably all aware of some of the recent studies that have said, for instance, that two-thirds of white Americans have no people of color within their intimate social groups, and that of the one-third that do, still 90% of their social circle remains white. And so it does become very important, I think, for us to find ways within our congregations, within our diocese, as you say, Bishop, Fisher, to get people to turn outward and to know about the persons that are in their community and their wider communities, our wider communities, are largely very diverse communities. And so how do we push people outward? I'm also struck in hearing both of you speak that, you know, this is work that we have to have a sort of two-pronged attack to, yes, we have to consistently do the work that calls into question the systemic and structural and wider global racism, if you will, in our communities. But the racism that impacts people's lives every day is what has become known in this country as unconscious bias or that, that we do every day and we aren't aware of. And by and large, people are good people and they do things that they aren't even aware of that they're doing and they're perpetuating racism on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it's that that we have to somehow get people to understand and what that looks like, that everyday racism that we may think is benign, but is not benign. And somehow I think that's the work that I know both of you are engaged in and working with people and that I think our church needs to become more committed to, not simply on a national basis, but in our congregations and in our local community. I was just going to say, we're, we're, we're people are good people, but people are sinful people. Yes, yes, uh, that's, that's right. And I, I love yesterday our presiding bishop is laying forth the, this new uh, rule of life. And the first, number one is to turn, which is just such a wonderful 
not as wrapped up in theology, church speak terms, but it's, it's that, like you said at the beginning, the Damascus Road of experience of saying, yes, I want to be a good person, but I can't do it on my own. That's why we're Christians. And so by, as the presiding bishop is calling us to now also, is to re-engage with scripture and the true roots of Christianity, which is love. And so therefore, when I read in scripture, that one of the lengthiest passages in the Gospel of John is Jesus's very intricate encounter with the woman at the well, who was different with him on almost every single level. And so by reading those stories, that's when I realized, huh, maybe I need to go to the well as well. That's right, thank you. Let me wrap up with this question for you all, and perhaps on a hopeful note, imagine a future day when the Episcopal Church is known for its reconciliation and racial justice. What would the church look like in that day? One of the things that people ask me, why do, you, why do we need to do anti-racism training, uh, racial reconciliation? And I always say, if we want our church to grow, if we want to share the love of Jesus Christ and become a truly beloved community, and that would mean grow, uh, then that's why we do anti-racism training. So making that direct connection, right? Uh, and then what we'll be known for would be that I would like to see our church being a curious church. Mm. So uh, Catherine Meeks talked about, it's simple, love and acceptance. I would say love and acceptance, in order to have acceptance, you have to be curious. Mm -hmm. Curious about myself, therefore I can interrogate myself. Curious about someone who's different, and, and I love godly play, they say, I wonder why you have different hair than I do. Teaching a child to do that instead of saying, can I touch your hair? Like, <laughs> oh my God, you know. It, it, but to say, teaching us to be curious. I wonder how you arrive at that conclusion and we're watching the same news report. Mm -hmm. hmm. So this curiosity to me, is a key skills that we need to teach every Episcopalian uh, to be curious about each other, curious about the world around them, curious about the people around them. And, and, and people notice when you walk into a church and it is a curious church, they feel accepted. If it's a church that say, oh, I need you to be on my choir, which often happens to me because I sing, that church is not welcoming me at all because that, that person is not curious about who I really am. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I guess I would add the word in front of curious, and I, I, I do like that, sort of a compassionate curiosity. And so because I see myself in you and I see you in me, and so it's this compassionate curiosity and not this kind of curiosity that leads someone to touch your hair, right? So thank you. Bishop Fisher. I think you're speaking of the the end, you're a seminary professor, the telos of the Episcopal mm -hmm. Church. And I'm then thinking of the end of our Holy Bible in the book of Revelation, where it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And around the throne of the Lamb was every tribe and language and people and nation. And my hope for the Episcopal Church is that we keep that vision in mind and know that it will not be fully realized in this time but that our churches, when people walk in, we experience it. They look at our altars and say, there's a new heaven, a new earth, and there's people from every tribe and language and people, nation, all gathered around the throne and worshiping love.
what a wonderful way to end. Thank you so very much for this conversation. I hope others who have listened in have gotten as much out of it as I have. And I thank you both for being on this journey together. And I look forward to us continuing it in our church.